Bible, and I hope you do, find your way to the book of Genesis, that very first book in your Bible. If you do not have a Bible, you can feel free to grab one of those black ESV pew Bibles around. Go ahead and write your name in it. Let that be yours. All right, well, today we are going to be picking it up in Genesis chapter 24 this morning. Genesis chapter 24. That's going to be on page 17 in those black Bibles. Now, as you're finding everybody there, we remind us that Genesis, and in particular Genesis 24, is an important chapter for us to consider today. Because in many ways, it will continue the story that we have seen throughout the book that of the story of God's goodness to his people. It's a book about providence. It's a book about God making promises and keeping those promises. And the most important promise that God had made to his people started all the way back in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, we saw that God will one day send someone to defeat Satan's sin and death, allowing humanity to be made right with God. And why did humanity have to be made right with God? Because there was what was called the fall, where our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned against God. They turned their back on him. They thought they could do better without him. And Adam's sin, because he was a representative of all of humanity, then has carried along to us. And if you think that's unfair, we can all admit that we've done our due part in following the same footprints as Adam, haven't we? But the promise in Genesis 3, the promise of the gospel was that God was going to send someone to fix that. To fix that propensity in all of us to rebel against God. To somehow fix the brokenness of this world because of sin. And he said there in Genesis 3 that he was going to send someone to do the work that we could not do ourselves. And because we read Genesis as Christians, we know that 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 person, that promised son, is Jesus Christ. That would come later down the road, but Genesis and Genesis 24 is a continuation of that story, the story of redemption, the story of God making promises and keeping his promises And we're going to look at that through the lens of providence this morning. Providence. Providence and marriage. As we look at the the marriage between a man named Isaac and a gal named Rebecca. Now providence, in case you're not familiar, it's just a fancy word. that, That means God's purposeful control of all things. That God is in control of all things. That's what God's providence is. And because he's in control of all things, every detail of the lives of his creation always serves his ultimate agenda, his ultimate purposes. And we should have great trust in the providence of God then, because God is good. He can't be anything else. It's part of his very nature. And so we're going to look that God is always in control, and I think Genesis 24 highlights that again for us. Now, some of you have probably noticed that Genesis 24 is actually a really long chapter, 67 verses. Normally, I try to read through the whole chapter before I actually begin an exposition of it. But because of its length, and because you guys 
maybe don't appreciate hour and 30-minute sermons yet. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. What I'm going to do is something a little bit different than I typically do. What I'm going to do is I'm going to just read the first nine verses of Genesis 24. And then as we go, I'll highlight a few specific sections and read those that I think are pertinent for our understanding of the narrative as a whole. Does that work for all of you? Okay. Well, before I read, let me pray for you one more time. And as I pray for you, will you guys pray for me? And then I'll read Genesis 24, verses 1 through 9 for us. But let's pray together. Father, as we are about to begin our time in your word, I'm very much aware that we are in desperate need of you. That these are not just simply words on a page, but rather they have been breathed out by you. That all scripture we believe is your word, Lord, even though it was penned by human hands. Those human hands served to reveal who you are. And so, Lord, we know that, that we are in desperate need of your spirit and your power to rightly understand who you are. Because without it, these words just seem foolish. These words just seem like a story long ago, much like a fairy tale. But we know that through your spirit, these are the words of our shepherd. And that we would see them revealing you and your your glory for us to consider today. So Lord, we pray for that. I also want to pray for our kiddos and the teachers leading them next door as they look at the same passage and try to imply and to apply just who you are to it, even to the the littlest of hearts that are in the building today. And I know that that's a task that's very challenging. But Lord, we want our kids not just to know about you, but to believe you and trust you. And so we know that only comes through you, Lord. And so we ask all these things in the power of your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Genesis chapter 24. 24. Not 23, it's 24. That's what I'm planning on. All right. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughter of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac." The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife from my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Yes, thanks be to God indeed. We're thankful for God's word. Now, if you are a note taker, let me kind of give you a road map of where I want to go today with four points. 
Point number one is we're going to see is the call to the next generation. Point number two is we'll see the, the steadfast love of the Lord. Number three, we'll see the old but the new call to go. And number four, we'll see that the Lord is always in control. Now, through our study of Genesis, you have probably noticed that the way that our English Bibles have broken up the chapters, even though this came later on, so it's not, the chapters are not inspired like the text, but the chapters were broken up to try to help us understand when a new narrative or a new segment of a story began. And we've seen that through Genesis, where each chapter seemed to serve as this, this new, new details or new part of the story that was forming. And Genesis 24 is no different. But let me remind us that the last chapter, Genesis 23, that we looked at last week, was all about Abraham trying to bury his wife, Sarah. Right, Sarah, who was the first matriarch of what would become the nation of Israel, she had died. And Abraham wanted to bury Sarah in the land of Canaan, in this promised land, in which God said, one day will be yours. But they didn't have any right to it right then and there. But Abraham was able to buy a cave and a piece of land and to bury his wife. And here, at the start of Genesis 24, now we're highlighting in on Abraham. We're told that he's old, well advanced in years. You see, the author is trying to get us to understand that there's a transition happening to the characters that we've become so familiar with since Genesis 12, that there is a transition happening. But we're reminded in these opening verses of Genesis 24 that the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And we can't move past that too quickly. Because we have to remember that God has been with Abraham in a very particular way since Genesis 12. It was Abraham and his family, only because the mercy and the grace of God, that God said, I want to make a covenant with you, Abraham. I want to choose you and your family to receive these blessings from me. That I want to make your name great. I want to make a nation out of you and your family. I want to give you a piece of land that you can call your own. A land that I have given you. And I want to bring from your family line a blessing that would reach all of the world. And we've been tracing that blessing, that covenant, that binding agreement between God and Abraham since Genesis 12. And so here in 24, remembering that God has been keeping his promises, haven't he? hasn't he? Right? He has been faithful. He's been faithful to Abraham all these years, even though he's now old, advanced in years. And as we'll see next week, that his time is coming to an end. And I think Abraham knew this. Right? He knew this. And so what we see here in, in verses 2 through 9 is Abraham get one of his servants and starts talking to him, giving him some instructions of what is to come. And, what's, what's, and it really serves as the plot line for the rest of the chapter. And what's the plot? That Abraham wants to have, Isaac, wants Isaac, his son, to have a wife. 
Because he knows, and this is that point number one, the call to the next generation, that God's blessing, God's covenant with him was supposed to be beyond Abraham. It had to continue to the next generation. That's what God had promised. That even though Isaac was the promised child, he was not the ultimate seed that would lead a blessing to all of the world. That would continue to come. But how in the world is Isaac supposed to have a son? Maybe it's supposed to, that's going to be the son if he doesn't have a wife. And so we see this tension of another problem. How will God's promise continue? And we see Abraham saying, you need a son, or you need a wife, son. And he gives an instruction to his most trusted servant to be a part of this. Now, many of you probably noticed that there was a, there's an interesting way that they promised each other how they would do certain things in the ancient Near East world. Right? We see the servant place his hand under the thigh of Abraham. And that's odd to us, right? We don't, we don't make promises that way. I'm thankful that we shake hands, personally. Like, I'm all for historical retrieval of good things, but I'll, I'll let the, the thigh-touching stay in the ancient Near world, okay? But what it, what it meant was, it was meant to be this, this serious way for two people to say, I got you. For two people to say, I am committed to what you're telling me to do. I will do this. And so in those first few verses, we see Abraham's request. That he wants his servant to go back to the land in which they came from originally and to find for his son Isaac a wife. And we see very specific instructions. That it was not to be a wife from the Canaanites, not to be a wife from the land in which they currently dwelled, but to go back to his kindred, and that wife was supposed to come back to the promised land to be with Isaac there. And Isaac was not to go back to their original homeland. Now I want to stop there. Why does Abraham care? Right? Why does he care so much about not only who his son will marry, but also where they will worship? Why does that matter? Because it matters to the next generation. It matters because Abraham knew that the marriage of Isaac would have consequences or blessings for the next generation to learn about the promises of God. And much like Sarah played an instrumental role in helping Abraham hold on to the promises of God, Abraham knew that Isaac's wife would have to do the same. You see, Abraham, he could have set Isaac up with a, maybe a wealthy or, or a royal Canaanite woman. We learned last chapter that Abraham was well-respected in the land. He probably could have requested any girl in Canaan to be the wife of Isaac. And there would have been, right, some very immediate benefits to that, right? An acquirer of land. More prominence in the region. But he doesn't do that. He says, I want him to marry someone from our homeland. I want him to marry someone who worships the same God as we do. 
as we'll see in the coming verses. Because Abraham knew that the worship of God mattered, and it mattered in particularity to marriage. It mattered a whole lot to your marriage on whom does your spouse worship. The Bible speaks plainly about this church. That there is great danger from believing that it doesn't really matter what my spouse believes and what I believe. Let me show you a passage from Deuteronomy where Moses is instructing the Israelites as they're coming, making their way back to the promised land. This is Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 through 4. I think I have that one. I may not. Mike's saying I do not. Let me read it to you. It says, You shall not intermarry with them. This is speaking of the Canaanites. Giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters to your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. You see, in the ancient Near East world, in the way that Moses, here in Deuteronomy, but also Abraham's instructing the servant about marriages, he's not, he's not trying to make these ethnic lines, saying that the, the people of Abraham's lineages have some kind of superior DNA to those of the Canaanites. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about worship. Because in, in that time, much of where the land that you live drew a certain conclusion of what you believed. And so Abraham is saying that go to somewhere that they hold fast to the same promises that you hold fast to. See, it's always been about worship. Abraham didn't want Isaac to marry a Canaanite, not because she was a Canaanite, but because she didn't worship the God in whom Isaac would have to hold on to. And this is not just an Old Testament thing. We see this in the New Testament. This is 2 Corinthians 6.14. Where Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? See, God cares about marriage. He cares about marriage a lot. He cares about human relationships. And he knows that marriage will affect how you worship. Because at the end of the day, Sunday is not the totality of Christian worship. It's not just where you end up driving to for a couple hours on Sunday morning. Rather, worship changes everything about you, doesn't it? It changes your priorities, right? Where you're generous, who you're generous with, why you're generous. It changes your commitments. It changes your life. Wholesale. And Abraham, like the rest of Scripture, testifies that a marriage is intended to be a place where two people, a husband and wife, can link arms and say, let's trust the plan and the promises of God together. We need each other to do that. So marriage was intended to be. And so Abraham is warning, much like Paul was warning. You could go around that, but it would be very difficult. Now, I know for many in this room, that's a really tough topic. That's really even 
maybe first time you've heard it, but maybe you've heard it many times, it doesn't make it any easier to hear. And I know that because many of you in this room have felt the destruction and the pain of having a marriage where it seems like it's not going in the same direction. And so you know the pain of that. You know the pain of not being on the same page as your spouse when it comes to worship. Or maybe you're on the same page, but it doesn't seem like you're in total agreement on what's most important, and you wish you were on more of the same page. I know that's true for many, and I'm not here to beat you up. In fact, I want to tell you that there's actually really good news, that God knows about all of this. He knows about your life. You're not hiding anything from him. hope you know that. And that's actually a good thing. He knows about the brokenness and the challenges of marriage. But what we will see in this chapter and, and throughout the totality of Scripture is, is God doesn't give up on marriages, even when they're rocky, even when they're rough, even when you think that they're not going to work out in the end. Church, the testimony of Scripture is there's nothing too difficult for the Lord. I've seen God restore marriages. I've seen God allow things to happen that wouldn't happen in your wildest dreams. I've also seen just faithful trust from spouses where it never changed. But they trusted that God, if they were married, that that was, that's where God had brought them because marriage is from God. And so they trusted him even through long, long, hard years. Now, I don't know what will happen to any particular relationship in this room or or anywhere for that matter. But I do know that no matter where you're at, church, you can trust him. You can trust that he's good, and you can trust the work that he's doing. Because Philippians 1.6 says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's a promise for you. And you should hold on to that. But the principle is, from Abraham, is don't compromise on worship. Trust me, it's not worth it. You may think it won't be that bad, but it will. It will. Now, returning to our text, what does the servant do? Well, he makes the 400-mile journey from Canaan back to the Mesopotamian region of Nahor. And he gets to the wells where his camels can get water. And we begin to see that the servant here, and we never know his name, by the way, the servant of Abraham we start to learn more about him. And we learn that, like Abraham, a disciple of Abraham, but also a follower of of the God whom Abraham worshipped, he's trusting the Lord for this mission that his master had given him. And so starting in verse 12, we see the servant praying for the steadfast love of the Lord. And that's point number two. We start to see the steadfast love of God on display. Let me read verses 12 through 14. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. 
Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Now before I tell you what happens, I want to draw your attention to a particular word that the servant used in verses 12 and verses 14. In our English Bibles, it's translated the steadfast love, at least in the English Standard Version, which I'm reading out of. The steadfast love, and it's the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed. Now, what we have is an accurate translation. It is the steadfast love of the Lord. But it's, it's more encompassing than that. Often a Hebrew word is limited the way that our English language has. So let me just kind of show you a little bit more about this word. It means a covenantal love. Hesed means that it's an unflinching love, a committed love, that no matter what happens, I am going to do what I promised to do, that I'm not relying upon you to hold up your end, as if if you do your end, then I'll love you, but rather the Hesed love the steadfastness love, the loyal love of God. And so the servant is, is saying, Lord, I need that. Remember that that's the kind of love that you pour out in your people. And so he's, he's praying this, not to twist God's arm, right? He's not trying to tell God something that he doesn't know about himself, but rather to acknowledge and remind himself That this is the God in whom he's trusting with this mission. This is the God whom he's trusting with his life. And that's what prayer does. Prayer is not about changing God. It's not about changing him. Prayer is used by God, right? This communication between him and us to really remind us about who this God is. Certainly like a good father wants to hear about what's going on in the lives of his children. But the ultimate thing is for us to be reminded of who we're talking to. That's what prayer is all about, church. It's to remind us of who we're talking to, that he's the one who knows all. That God, if God is God, then he knows all and he's all-powerful. So you should talk to him about everything. It's a great blessing. If you want to study said more, or maybe you just want to see that play out, because it's all over the Bible, uh, Psalm 136, we're not going to look at it today, but Psalm 136 is this wonderful psalm that's all about the hesed of God. The psalmist just goes over it again and again. You've been hesed here. You've been hesed here. You've been hesed here. And let that be an encouraging word to you. But the servant prays, right? He prays about the hesed of God. And throughout this whole narrative, you'll notice that he's always praising God for answered prayer for his steadfast love because he knows that there's no coincidences in life. Christians do not believe in coincidences. We believe in providence, that God knows all the details. What may seem like just two random things to us are never two random things to God. And then after verse 14, what we see is, or through, through 12 through 14 and following, we see the, the servant, he, he sets up this scenario like, this is, if this happens, then I know that God is answering my prayer. And it's honestly, it's a pretty wild, crazy scenario. He says, I'm going I'm to camp here by the well. And one of the women is going to come up, offer me a drink, and then offer to water all of my camels. And this is what she's going to say. This is what she's going to do. 
Now, I don't think this is prescriptive that we're supposed to just tell God, this is what I want you to do, now answer my prayers. But we do see God answer these prayers in a unique way. But this scenario is ridiculous. In particular, the watering of the camels is ridiculous. Ten camels were told of that the servant came with. Now, ten camels is a lot. This would have been like a, a really rich posse moving through the region. Now, when a camel is thirsty, really thirsty, and I think a 400-mile journey would probably warrant a thirsty camel, a camel would drink upwards of 25 gallons of water, okay, per camel. Now, the average well bucket held about three gallons of water. Now, some of you have animals, and you know how much it takes to water an animal. If she were to water all of the camels, give all of the camels water, she's making of between 80 to 100 trips to the well to water these, these animals. See, he's praying for not just you know, God to bring this woman, but this woman is going to be resilient, going to be tough, right? Going to love animals. But what happens? Well, starting in verse 15, we see that God answers all those prayers, doesn't he? And in particular, in verse 15, we see Rebecca come, and then we read that she's, actually, she's beautiful in appearance. She's attractive. We find later out that she is from the kindred of Abraham. And she does exactly what the servant prayed for. Now, that verse in verse 16 about Sarah's appearance and her attractiveness, let me remind you, the last woman that we are told that had, and we're told about her beauty and her attractiveness was Sarah. Was Sarah. The very woman in whom the servant is trying to find a replacement for. To be a, a new matriarch for the nation. You see, the stage is being set for God to answer these prayers. And so Rebecca does the watering, has these conversations with the servant about what's going on, and we just see that God is in the details. All of the details in which we're laid out, God is answering all of them. Then we jump in from verses 28 through 60. This is point number three. We see the old but the new call to go. To try and summarize, we see Rebecca invite the servant back to her home as an act of hospitality. We see that the servant had already given Rebecca jewelry, right? These, these gold and these earrings and bracelets, which were really these wedding promises between two parties. And back at Rebecca's house, we meet her older brother Laban who comes out wanting to know what's going on. Who's the guy with all the camels? Who's the one who's making her water all the camels? Who's the guy with all the gold? Right? This would have been very peculiar. Right? This didn't happen every day. And so we see Laban right, kind of investigate. Hey, who are you? What are you about? What are you trying to do with my sister? Like a good brother should. And what we see is really a repetition of the servant kind of replaying the whole scene, doesn't he? Kind of goes back through the narrative and gives all the details of what has happened. But if we read through it, you know, carefully and slowly, what you would notice is that the servant also adds a whole bunch of more details. 
In particular, he's adding the details about Abraham. What had happened to Abraham? The promises that were given to Abraham. The promises of what God had been up to. Now, why does the author include all of this? Right, it's one thing for, in real time, for the servant to tell the family what had happened. But why was it recorded, right, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to be just a repeated section? Like, we just read that. Why do we need to know that information again? I think there's a couple reasons why. One is, in the Hebrew language, they didn't have... Like, you didn't underline things, or you didn't add exclamation points. So the only way in a, in a kind of that oral language to provide emphasis on something is you would repeat it. And so to the original audience, what Moses is doing is he's repeating the story for emphasis. Repeating the story for emphasis. But I think there's also a greater reason for that. And that has to do with us. Because the, the servant, what he wanted to do is he wanted to boast in the Lord again. And church, that's what God's people do. They constantly boast in what God has done and what will continue to do. Simply put, we don't get over what God has done. We don't get over the gospel. We, we don't get over Jesus. We don't move behind, beyond him. We don't say, yeah, we talked about the cross and Jesus last Easter. Why would we do that again? You see, God's people are always wanting to boast in what is most boastful. And that's the God of all creation and who he is and what he has done. And I think in some ways the servant is trying to provide this litmus test by his boasting in the Lord by seeing, does this family boast in the Lord also? Would they say this is all coming from God? Or are they saying this comes from something else? Are there different circumstances that have led to this? Do they worship a different God? Well, I think in verse 50, the servant gets his answer. He gets his answer. When it says, Then Laban and Bethuel, who was Rebekah's dad, answered and said, The thing has come from who? The Lord. The Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. We have to acknowledge who's ultimately in control here. We have to understand what is going on. And so what we see is them giving God glory here. We see them saying, we believe you, servant. We're on the same page as you. And they give God glory. And they talk about what would glorify him and the sending of Rebekah. And they agree to send Rebekah to a foreign land to marry a person that she had never met. Now, even though that was arranged marriages were, were common practice in that culture, we can't be, it wasn't a flippant decision, though. Even though it was common for a bride to marry a groom that she had never met, don't think that this was just some flippant thing that they said, yeah, go ahead, do that. No, they considered it. We even see in the text that they're like, well, can she come later? Like maybe 10 days? Which most scholars believe that that was a kind of a, not an exact amount, but more of a, yeah, we'll send her, but it could be 10 days, but maybe 100 days, maybe a few years from now. We'll send her. But the servant said, no, no, no. If this is from the Lord, this needs to happen now. 
And even though that it wasn't maybe popular in that day, they gave Rebecca a lot of power in making that decision, didn't they? They gave her the ultimate, do you want to go or do you not want to go? And she chose to go. And this is where it's an old, but it's a new call to go. Because remember, who was the other person, right? The other bride that had to leave her home country and travel to a land simply because of the promises of God. Sarah. Sarah. So even though Sarah was married to Abraham when they left their homeland and trusted in that God would provide for them and that his promises were good and right, she still had to leave her family behind and trust that what God had for her next was better than what she could ever think of in that moment. And so she made a decision to go. You see the parallels between Sarah and Rebecca. That Rebecca certainly is fitting to be the new matriarch, the one to replace her. Now our narrative continues. It says in verses 61 through 67, we see that Rebecca does leave and go and travels the journey back to Canaan. This is point number four. We see that the Lord is always in control. Always in control. Because what happens as they're arriving back into the land. If you guys have your Bibles open, look down at verses 62 through 65. Let me show you this. Now Isaac had returned from Be'er Lahoi Roy and was dwelling in Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. If there was any